With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lockaway channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. Earlier this month, in the middle of the night, the Supreme Court refused to block a Texas law that bans most abortions. That law is now the most restrictive abortion measure in the nation. It bans abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy and establishes a sort of bounty system that allows anyone to sue those involved in facilitating an abortion. This is, of course, bigger than Texas. The decision could be a blueprint for gutting Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court ruling that legalized abortion nationally. This is going to play out in the courts. And while it does, groups on the ground are figuring out how to adapt. Zena Zamora is the executive director of the Frontera Fund. They provide support and funding for those seeking abortions in Texas's Rio Grande Valley. We're going to talk about what this decision means for those seeking care and where this fight goes from here. A lot of us aren't in Texas right now. We're not looking at this uh, through the lens of someone who is there. Where are you, Zena? Where in Texas are you? I'm located in the Rio Grande Valley, so deep south Texas along the U.S.-Mexico border. What are you hearing from people in Texas? There's a lot of confusion around the law and just people being upset. I think a lot of people think that this law just went way too far. The biggest concern for most of the people who do abortion funding work is how are we going to help people get their abortion care? In your own words, what does this legislation do? So SB8, what it does is it bans abortion past six weeks in Texas. It is essentially a complete abortion ban because by the time most people know that they're pregnant, they're unable to get an abortion in Texas. This also has a very cruel and specific civil litigation or civil cause of action that allows anybody to sue anybody else who helps 
quote unquote, aid and abet someone in getting abortion care in Texas past six weeks. It is such a vague law that we don't really know what it means to aid and abet. It can be anything from like giving somebody money to get their abortion, taking them to their abortion appointment, like literally driving them to their appointment, a parent being there for their child while they get their care, a spiritual leader giving counseling around abortion, a doctor giving that as an option to a patient, somebody who works like the work that we do in Frontera Fund, do abortion funding, like helping people pay for their abortion, helping them get the travel that they need to get their abortion care. So all of that constitutes aiding and abetting, right? So it puts a lot of people at legal risk for helping someone that they love get the care that they need. We'll talk a little bit about what this means nationally and the the ramifications nationally. But first, I do want to talk about Texas. And I want to talk about people might be seeking abortions in the Rio Grande Valley, specifically what this legislation means for Latinas in RGV. Just to kind of give you a background of the demographic in the Rio Grande Valley, we're a very um, beautiful and vibrant community. But on the flip side, we also are a low-income community. Um, we're largely characterized as Hispanic or Latinx. More than 90% of us um, identify as Hispanic. Even prior to SB8, we were kind of living in an abortion desert. There's only one abortion clinic south of San Antonio, and that clinic is in McAllen, Texas. There were a lot of barriers that Texas has in place even prior to SB8 that made getting an abortion exceedingly difficult. One of the first things you realize when you get an abortion is you have to get an ultrasound, right? So the ultrasound has to be performed by the same person who is doing the abortion, and an ultrasound has to be done 24 hours before the actual abortion. So there's a 24-hour waiting period to getting an abortion. The doctor has to explain to you what you're seeing on the ultrasound screen. They also have to do mandatory counseling, and then you have to wait 24 hours. Then you go back the next day, um, and you get your abortion. So all of these were hoops that people had to jump through to get an abortion. So I think, well, specifically in the Rio Grande Valley, we're in a very unique um, geographical area. Because we are close to the border, that means we're the furthest away from any state line, right? So under SB8, if you don't get your abortion before six weeks, then you're going to have to travel outside of Texas to get your care. And that just simply isn't a reality for a lot of people. What Frontera Fund does is we provide financial assistance, so we'll literally help you pay for your abortion because it's so expensive. And we also provide travel support as well because another big barrier in Texas is that there are very few abortion clinics. We're a huge state. We also provide travel support in the form of lodging, gas money, air and ground transportation, however, whatever anybody needs to get their care. Which is... To say nothing of the fact that if you are a working class woman, mm -hmm. in order to do that travel and in order to accommodate the 24-hour wait time, it means you're likely taking at least two days off of work. Oh, yeah. You're taking two days off. If you have to travel more than 100 miles to the clinic, then you're able to get a same day, like a same day procedure, but you have to wait two hours between your ultrasound and your 
actual abortion. But in general, yes, there's a bunch of residual costs that aren't even calculated into the actual cost, which is, you know, loss of wages, childcare, food, all of that stuff. This is happening in Texas. Legislation like this is written not just to limit access to abortion in the state of Texas. It is written to force a decision from the Supreme Court that fundamentally changes the nature of abortion and access to abortion in the United States. Can you tell me what that long game looks like? So I had told this to a reporter earlier that if and we're already seeing it, that if SB8 is allowed to stand, then you're going to see copycat laws all across the South and the Midwest. You're going to get this vast abortion desert where nobody in the South or the Midwest is able to get their care without having to travel very far distances to get the care that they need. Or access care that is not legal. Yes. And that's what happens when you have abortion bans, right? It, abortion bans don't stop abortions. What they really do is stop abortions happening in a clinical setting. You have people turning to self-managed abortions um, to get the care that they need. Meaning the use of misoprostol or other drugs? Yes, using abortion-inducing medication. And is my understanding that there is additional legislation that is aimed... At self-managed abortion. Yes. I think it was SB4 that just um, passed recently that limits abortion medication. I think has kind of very similar language to SB8, putting that punishment towards people who are helping other people get access to medication abortion. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads, what did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blowout barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Pamper Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size eight and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important, and it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer. M&M's for all fun kind. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th 
at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Talk to me a little bit about the split screen of in the same week that the Supreme Court upholds legislation that effectively bans abortion in the state of Texas, that right across the border, you have Mexico's Supreme Court declaring that abortion is not a crime. Yeah, that was, it's so interesting. We don't know what that means for us yet because right now, all Mexico has done is decriminalized it, right? So they're just saying a person can't be punished criminally for having an abortion. Um, but there's still not an abortion provider in any of the neighboring states. In Tamaulipas and Nuevo León, there's not an abortion provider. Um, but if there was one, I can definitely imagine people crossing the border to get their care because people do that already with other types of care. You know, um, so many people go to the border towns for all sorts of health care and go to the pharmacies in Mexico to get their pharmaceuticals. And that's just something that people commonly do in border towns. We're in a very weird moment because things are literally changing from day to day. Like the fact that Mexico decriminalized it is going to affect my work. The fact that the DOJ has now gotten involved is going to affect the outcome of SB8. Let me just say for those who may not be following this as closely, what you're referring to is that the Department of Justice is going to file suit against the state of Texas. Yes. Yes. And so what outcome is that going to have? We're at a pivotal point in abortion access. But at the same time, people who've been doing this work have been preparing for a post-Roe v. Wade type of world. And we've kind of looked at SB8 of what's happening in Texas as as horrible as this is to say, like as a practice run of what it's going to be like to live in that type of world. Like, how are we going to build the infrastructure and the pipelines to get people to places where they can get their care? Many people from the United States depend on going to Mexico to get their care because it is a lot cheaper and it's high quality care over there. So I'm very happy that Mexico did what they did. When you say that organizations like Frontera Fund are imagining and thinking through what infrastructure will need to look like in a post-Roe world, what is that work? So what that work looks like is basically working together with the different funds in different areas of the country and figuring out kind of getting the logistics of all the different restrictions that each state has. What does it look like for minors to get care over there? What's the travel going to be like? Um, are there people who are bilingual that can, you know, help people who are Spanish speaking? You know, that all those types of logistical questions that we need to get answer. Like, are there protesters outside of the clinic? What kind of restrictions do the state have? What's so frustrating is that it it's really different from state to state. And that almost creates a little bit of a logistical nightmare because we have to think about all these different things. Zina, I want to talk a little bit about Roe v. Wade because 
one of the shifting conversations within the reproductive justice movement has been about the fact that millennials like myself, born into a post-Roe world where um, we, depending on where we lived, did not need to think about access to abortion in the same way that people were thinking about it in a pre-Roe world. And that the framework of Roe was not exactly resonant with many members of our generation. You've seen this shift within the advocacy community um, away from focusing so much on Roe and focusing more on access to reproductive care as a broad racial justice issue, social justice issue. And I wonder now that that shift, that generational shift has been made, how something like the Texas law, which brings Roe back into question and thus back into focus, then collides with this new framework and this new language. There's a little bit of a disconnect, I think. It can be little things like saying this is about women's rights. You know, well, it's not just about women's rights. It's about uh, human rights because, again, it's not just women who have abortions. It's uh, non-binary, intersex, trans folks. Um, and also, you know, recognizing that Roe is the floor. It's not the ceiling. Like, access should be the bare minimum of what we should get. There is a shift in the culture stigma of abortion. I think now we're seeing like people who are no longer saying things like I'm pro-choice. It's like, no, I'm pro-abortion. And pro-abortion means that you support somebody's decision to have an abortion that you trust what they're that they know what they're doing for themselves and they're they're making the right decision for themselves and that you think that people should have complete access to abortion care without any restrictions, right? And I think it's really important to recognize that, again, that row is the floor and it's not the ceiling. Like that is the bare minimum of what should we should be asking for. So if that's the minimum, then what is the maximum? Having complete access to abortion. You know, abortion doesn't have to be, it feels like, it feels like abortion care almost needs to be like this constant battle for crumbs. In certain states, that's what it feels like, especially like in Texas and in the South and Midwest. It doesn't have to be that way. You know, um, people saw, especially under the pandemic, saw like the usefulness of doing uh, telemedicine or telehealth. Like it, abortion could be as easy as meeting your doctor online and telling them when your last menstrual period was and them sending you pills through the mail where you're able to have an abortion at home with the guidance of a doctor or nurse practitioner or somebody and without any shame or stigma attached to it or being able to go to a clinic without getting harassed or having to go through a bunch of different types of barriers that the state um, implements on a person. Having abortion be able to be covered by health insurance coverage or even be free for people. And not only just abortion, but just like the whole range of reproductive care. I think it's good to imagine how it should be instead of just thinking, fighting for those little crumbs. I think it's really important when you do this work to imagine like it doesn't have to be this way. It can be an experience that is not riddled with shame or stigma or restrictions, and it should be that way. It is not lost on me 
don't think it's lost on most people that Texas has been in the news a lot these days, in part because of the way your governor has approached um, the pandemic, in part because of the um, voting rights legislation that we've seen coming out of the state of Texas, and in part because of this abortion law, to say nothing of gun laws, immigration, there's a whole bouquet of issues there. I wonder if you agree that all of these issues are connected. Oh, yeah. And that to truly understand the power grab that is happening, you can't just look at any one piece. You have to step back and look at it as as interconnected and happening in its totality. Yeah, absolutely. It is no coincidence that the same legislature that passed SB8 is the same legislature that passed restrictions against public schools teaching critical race theory. It's the same one that is passing voting restrictions. It's the same one that is trying to pass anti-trans legislation. And it's all connected because none of these exist in a vacuum, right? They're all intersectional. So that's definitely not lost, I think, on anybody who lives in Texas who sees what's happening. Which is why so many Texans, I think, have that constant, do I stay and fight or do I concede that this is not aligned with my values and who I am? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely difficult to have that conversation with yourself. But I also think that comes from a place of privilege where you're able to say, Mm. oh, do I stay and fight or do I go? Most people don't have the privilege to just go, you know, and we shouldn't have to go either. You know, um, a lot of us are indigenous to this land. We've lived here for generations and generations On my mother's side, I'm second generation American, but on my dad's side, they've been in Texas since Texas was Mexico and since Texas turned into Texas and then Texas turned into a state in the U.S., right? So that family has been here for generations and I'm going to stay and fight because someone has to. And I always tell myself, like, you are the one you've been waiting for. There's not going to be a savior who's going to come and save us all. It has to be done from the community and it has to be done with you. Which brings me perfectly to my next question, which is (laughs) what is it that brings you to this work? So I think funding abortion is a radical act of community care. And doing this work has really changed my worldview on a lot of things because it's so intersectional and it really does make you view the world through a very specific type of lens that is for freedom for all types of people. And how I personally got into this work was a, a friend of mine who is a the founder of Frontera Fund. She was having an event for Frontera Fund and I met up with her and I asked her like, wow, this is great. How can I help? And so she put me on the board and she put me to work. Like she put my money where my mouth was and was like, okay, you want to help? Then get on the board and you're going to do some work around it. And I just kind of really fell in love with it. I've always been very vocal about being pro-choice and I really love the work that I do and being able to help my community in this way. Zeno, what did I miss? That is a good question. I think it's really important for people to 
have these uncomfortable conversations to say the word abortion. You know, don't use euphemisms like, say, the procedure or whatever. Um, say abortion. You know, it's not a dirty word. Abortion is healthcare. People get abortions for different types of reasons, and we shouldn't have to, you know, bring up things like, oh, they didn't even make exceptions about rape or incest. Like, it shouldn't matter the reason somebody has an abortion. It, sh it matters that this is what they want. This is what they've decided for themselves and for their families. And they should have the right to have access to an abortion if they so need it. And it should not be the responsibility of other states to take care of Texans. Texans should be able to take care of Texans for themselves. Sana, I know this is a very, very busy time for you. So thank you so much for taking the time for us. Thank you. This was fun. Instead of offering you my takeaways from this episode, I'm instead going to read you a bit of what Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote in her dissent. The court's order is stunning, she wrote, presented with an application to enjoin a flagrantly unconstitutional law engineered to prohibit women from exercising their constitutional rights and evade judicial scrutiny, a majority of justices have opted to bury their heads in the sand. The court has rewarded the state's effort to delay federal review of a plainly unconstitutional statute enacted in disregard of the court's precedents through procedural entanglements of the state's own creation. The court should not be so content to ignore its constitutional obligations to protect not only the rights of women, but also the sanctity of its precedents and of the rule of law. Hey, thank you so much for listening. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lantigua and me, Alicia Menendez. Sarah McClure is our senior producer. Our lead producer is Cedric Wilson. Kojin Tashiro is our associate sound designer. Steven Colon makes this episode. Jimmy Gutierrez is our managing editor. Manuela Bedoya is our social media editor and ad ops lead. We love hearing from you. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. Slide into our DMs on Instagram or tweet us at Latina to Latina. Remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Good Pods, wherever you're listening right now. And remember, every time you share the podcast or you leave a review, you help us to grow as a community. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.